This is the Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. First up on the show, Luc-Henrique Gomez, The Guardian Australia's social affairs and inequality editor, joined me for the first instalment of a special federal election policy series on Uncommon Sense. Luke discusses the policies and track record of the major and minor parties in the areas of social policy, including the cashless debit card, JobSeeker and the NDIS. Then I spoke with veteran broadcaster and author John Fain. John joined me to discuss his new book, Apollo and Thelma, A True Tall Tale. John tells the astonishing true story of the world's strongest man, Paul Anderson, also known as the Mighty Apollo. He also tells us about Apollo's sister Thelma, a pioneering publican of the Wanda Inn at Top Springs in the Northern Territory. As John was Apollo's lawyer, he reckons with his own story too. This book is brilliant and it is many things at once. A memoir, a true story and a reflection on Australia's history and the fight for Indigenous rights. And finally, Rachel Denber, Deputy Director of the Europe and Central Asia Division at Human Rights Watch, joined me to speak about the atrocities and apparent war crimes being committed by the Russian military against Ukrainian civilians in Bucha, Ukraine. I'm really, really delighted to welcome back onto the program Luke Enrique Gomez. He is a regular on Uncommon Sense, which we are very lucky particularly because Luke in this world of journalism and media is really a policy specialist in two areas. He is the social affairs and inequality editor for The Guardian, and it's really great that he and his colleagues often get the chance to specialise in certain areas and, um, yeah, we get the benefit of that knowledge. And so I'm going to be joined by Luke now to talk about social policy, welfare policy, the NDIS and other related matters in the context of the election as part of a federal election policy series here on Uncommon Sense in the hope that we can shed some light on the similarities and differences between the major parties and also um, bring in the minor parties and independents where relevant. So I welcome Luke back on to the program. Hey there, Luke. Thank you so much for joining us again. G'day, Amy. It's always great to be on your show. Thank you so much for taking the time. I know it must be particularly busy given we are now, aren't we in week three of the election campaign, halfway nearly? I think, yes, I, it must be week three. It's kind of already a bit of a blur, I think. I don't know what, how you're finding it, mm-hmm. but um, it's a bit of a slog, but it'll be over soon enough, <laughs> I suppose. It is a very long campaign. This is a six-week campaign, but, I mean, it feels much longer, as we've been saying, because really the politicians have been campaigning for weeks to months already, so no wonder the electorate might be getting a bit fatigued as well as the journalists. Yeah, that's right. I mean, basically there was a sort of fake election campaign going on since back into last year, I think, really, to be honest. And, yeah, it's obviously ramped up, but we've had some public holidays as well um, in the the meantime. So um, I guess it probably hit, hit, um, uh, you know, a crescendo towards the end, but um, it's just been a lot of noise, I think, to be honest. Um, Not so much policy, but... Uh, maybe that's the nature of campaigns these days. It is a shame. I think it, it used to be, even in 2010, I remember writing political columns and 
lamenting the lack of policy and it was focused on personality at the time. I think it was, you know, we were looking at, you know, the Rudds and the Gillards and, you know, who was more charismatic, who shook Mm. one person's hand more firmly than the other and, you know, all these kind of controversies that would arise that really seemed like a storm in the teacup. But we do seem to, you know, have accelerated that trend and now we find ourselves in 2022 still finding the media bringing up Albanese's supposed gaffe from the first week. So I kind of thought that might have died down by now, but it doesn't seem to be. No, and, um, yeah, I mean, it's not my – media commentary is not my uh, specialty, but I do think that it was a little bit uh, much, to be honest. Um, but that's kind of just how politics is covered, I, I think, mostly. I mean, there are plenty of great political – Journalists, of course, particularly the Guardian Australia team. Um, but, um, you know, it's often covered as a bit of a horse race, a bit of a game uh, game show almost where the, the two candidates running for prime minister are sort of put up on a stage and the journalists sort of try and knock them down and then report on whether or not that occurred or not for, mm. for days on end, um, which I'm not sure if that really benefits voters and gives and you know viewers and readers and gives them the information that they need to make a, a informed choice at the ballot box um but you know perhaps me hoping that the coverage could be more like that is a little bit Pollyanna I don't know <laughs> well we're going to try to correct the tide at the moment and that switch it back the other way on Uncommon Sense here. Um, And I did note that Labor's campaign launch is actually on May 1. It's coming up very soon and people might say, but Amy, we're already in the campaign. Why are we launching it mid-campaign? It seems to be some weird tradition, I guess, that you do it almost in the middle of the campaign and I guess it must spur on the momentum and uh, really this is a chance for both sides to lay out their policy platform in great detail and Albanese is going to be doing that this Sunday, I believe, uh, in WA just after he gets out of COVID isolation um, as long as all is going well. Uh, Now, Luke, in your particular area that you report on, we have already been seeing a great number of policy announcements from both sides because, of course, the coalition delivered the budget, the March budget. So we got an idea of a lot of their policies from the budget, but there's a bit more to come. And then, of course, Labor now having this opportunity to point out in each area exactly what they're going to do. There won't be complete detail, as we've heard, and the costings will come later on in the piece. But I wonder with your particular area that you're reporting on, what are you seeing as having been the focus of the two parties at the moment? And what kind of areas of announcements at, at these policy campaign launches do you think we'll potentially be getting? And, you know, what kind of gaps still need to be filled? I think in sort of the terms of stuff that I cover, I would think that there must be something more coming from Labor on um, housing and rents. And I've seen some language from uh, Labor spokespeople about more to come on rent, rents, but I, I, it's hard to know exactly what they that would be. Um, um, on other, you know, I mean, a lot of the the Labor policy on, on sort of welfare and social policy is quite um, bare, I think, decidedly so. Um, but there are some commitments, you know, scrapping the cashless debit card, which is, a, which is a pretty key commitment for Labor, and that's obviously been at the centre of a sort of 
political fight over the Labor scare campaign, which perhaps we could get to. Mm. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I think it will be, you know, I don't think there will be too much more on in the areas that I report on, but perhaps something on rents. Um, the government doesn't really have much to say about how it's helping renters. You'll remember the Prime Minister was asked a couple of um, weeks ago, you know, what's the, what are you doing for renters? You've got this policy for... Um, for, you know, first home buyers um, underwriting um, mortgages, but what are you doing for renters? And the Prime Minister sort of said, oh, well, you know, the best thing we can do for renters is to help them buy a home. Um, yep. And then the Prime Minister was asked more recently about what's happening with the renters' rents, which are, you know, skyrocketing, particularly in the regions and particular parts of the country. And he sort of referred to existing um, policies that they have, like Commonwealth Rent Assistance, which is paid through the... Um, Centrelink system it goes to um, you know people on on benefits and, and the pension and things like that. And he sort it's of said, also well, measly, isn't it? It's tiny amounts. Yeah, exactly. It's I think about one hundred and twenty dollars per fortnight as, at a maximum. Um, so that's obviously not covering anybody's rent. Um, but yeah, I think there might be something more from Labor on that. Um, but the I don't know exactly how that will um, happen because clearly they've said that on the sort of social security space. Job seeker is not something that they're going to touch in the first budget, but I've heard Linda Burney sort of saying, you know, rent assistance is something we need to look at. Um, so I don't know if that's kind of paving the way for something in to do with rent assistance rather than job seeker early on in a Labor government if they were to win in saying all of that. I doubt any of that would be announced. Uh, anything to do with rent assistance will be announced at, at the policy at the election launch anyway. So, um, but yeah, that's kind of the thinking in in that area. I think that's really interesting. I remember last election in 2019 that you know Labor ran fairly clearly on seeking to review at least the job seeker rate because there was consensus across social services, not for profits, charities, the business lobbies you know, pretty much everyone in the community except politicians, that the rate needed to be raised. It is, you know, far below poverty levels at the moment. And, you know, although there was a, a kind of slight increase by the coalition, a per slight permanent increase, a lot of people have said that the current base rate of $46 a day is just not enough. So there is there a clear difference, at least between Labor in 2019 and Labor in 2022, in terms of that particular policy. But I wanted to bring in the high-profile independents, the so-called Teal candidates, mm. because they did say, should they be elected, and if there was, you know, negotiations, that that particular area raising the rate of job seeker would be a key policy on the bargaining table, which I found really interesting. Yeah, I, I, I agree. Um, so I interviewed or, um, you know, got comments from um, Zoe Daniel, um, who's running against Tim Wilson in Goldstein, and Kyla Tink, who's running in North Sydney against Trent Zimmerman, um, and then also um, um, Zali Stegall, who's obviously already in the parliament, Rebecca Sharkey, and uh, Andrew Wilkie, the, those three um, latter people have, I guess, already been on the record as being in favour of an increase to job seeker payment. But I thought Zoe, Daniel, and Kylie, Tink, Kylie Tink's um, comments were interesting. They both backed an increase, and Zoe Daniel, in particular, said that she supported the um, the old, um, I guess, ACOS increase um, demand of I think seventy five dollars a week, which was kind of backed by Deloitte. Um, that sort of pre pandemic. 
um, proposal and she sort of made a case for it on economic uh, grounds, which is kind of the same thing that um, Zali Stegall did as well in, in their comments. Um, and so I think it sort of shows you that, you know, clearly, you know, the, the reason why we should be increasing benefits is because people don't have enough money to live and they're living in poverty. But there are, you know, if you're looking at it more from the political side, there are ways to make the case for um, increasing um, these payments in a sort of, um, from an economic point of view as well. And, and so, you know, Zoe Daniel was saying basically that, you know, this would stimulate the economy, it would be good for the economy. Um, and it makes sense. And at the moment, the rate is a barrier to people getting into work. Um, so, you know, these are people going, particularly Zoe Daniel, running in a, um, a very, a normally a very safe liberal seat, mm. um, you know, Brighton. Um, seat of Goldstein. The seat of Goldstein, suburbs like Brighton, people would normally associate with, um, I guess, fairly, you know, people in favour of fairly conservative economic policies. But she's not afraid to say, well, actually, this is a common sense policy for economic reasons as well as for um, social justice or um, inequity uh, reasons. So, yeah, I agree. I thought those comments um, were very interesting um, and perhaps um, shows how those those teal independents have kind of carved out particular areas where the Labor Party perhaps is not... Um, Bold, as bold as um, some voters in those electorates um, or in, in perhaps across the general electorate would, would like. Um, I thought it was quite, quite interesting um, comments, as you say. Yeah. I do recall when I interviewed Jo Dyer, who's an independent running for the seat of Boothby in South Australia, she also had very strong opinions and views on the job seeker rate and was of a similar view that it should be one of the top priorities of any independent including herself, if she ever um, got up, that she would also have that as her priority uh, in negotiations. So it is very heartening to hear across the board that so many of these Teal independents are putting that up publicly for everyone to know that that is a reason to vote for them. One other element to this is, of course, the Greens, because I know many people may vote Green, given that Adam Bant is the member based in Melbourne. So they have been quite popular in the inner city areas. And the Greens have pledged to lift all payments to the Henderson poverty line of $88 a day. What are your thoughts on the Greens and how they've been laying out their welfare policies at the moment? Um, I think the Greens have uh, the the policy is it would certainly make an enormous difference um, to poverty, right? I mean, setting payments to the poverty line is is a great thing. Um, I think there perhaps are potential um, issues around the way that um, those payments might interact because you know if you set a base rate of $88 a day for all payments including the age pension the disability support pension job seeker and then people are getting other supplementary payments like um, family tax benefit and things like that and then you also have to consider people who are working and will have their payments tapered it, it, I'm, I'm yet to see how exactly if that will not sort of throw up a couple of issues to be honest but, um, I mean, it's a clear pledge and, and the aim of the policy, which really, um, you know, is quite expensive, but it will do what it says on the, on the, on the box, which is that it will basically uh, almost, I'd say, eliminate poverty in, in Australia if you were to ensure that everybody on a government payment was over the poverty line. I suppose the other complicating factor is, um, 
and, and you know, I'm not here to say that the Henderson Poverty Line has no value. I think it's a great measure, um, and certainly in lieu of having an official poverty line in the country, you know, the federal government doesn't want to adopt one at all. Um, I, I think um, it's useful, but I mean, it, it is a poverty line that was sort of created in in the mid 70s and since then has been indexed um, according to CPI. So, um, I, I mean, I I think that as a you know what they'll be doing partly would just be restoring the coronavirus supplement, you know, setting the payments back to what they were at the during the pandemic. And I think that would be a great thing. But I think that also there, there would be a good idea to have some kind of review um, to determine exactly where the poverty line is, um, you know, in a current context. And then also to ensure that you can make sure that the payments all work together properly. I mean, I, I don't really understand what the point is of having... Um, the different payments, if they're all going to be set at the same um, rate and the eligibility criteria would be basically eliminated. Um, but, you know, it's a strong position and I think at least it puts the, you know, it, it reminds people the payments are far too low um, and people are living in poverty and, and it's a political choice to, to have that occurring um, and the Greens policy makes that incredibly clear, I think. It's an excellent point about updating the poverty line data and reviewing that. And um, one related policy area that certainly has been at the front of people's minds is the cashless debit card as well as the basics card, which we have discussed in a bit of detail in the past on this show with yourself, Luke. The cashless debit card, for those who don't recall, is a form of income management that quarantines up to 80% of someone's welfare payment onto a card, and it can't be used to withdraw cash, buy alcohol, or be used on gambling products. It also is really limited in the different types of shops it can be used at. It can't just be used anywhere like a normal you know, debit card would. And it has been exceptionally controversial given that the coalition has said all along that they wanted to widen its scope in terms of its application. It's been increasing in the number of trials they've been doing, and we spoke about trial results last time. But the contestation in the last week or so has been how many payments or payment types would be put onto a cashless debit card under a new coalition government mm. if they were elected. So I wonder, could you take us through the cashless debit card, uh, in particular who it's currently affecting and who it could affect in realistic terms based on past statements and current statements? So the cashless debit card is is um, running in a couple of trial sites around the country. So um, East Kimberley and Goldfields region in WA, Sejuna in um, South Australia, um, the um, Bundaberg and Harvey Bay in um, Queensland, and then it also operates in um, a little tiny trial site in the Cape York uh, and um, in the Northern Territory where it's kind of being... Um, promoted as a replacement to the basics card because the government argues that it's a sort of superior um, sort of platform or something along those lines. Um, now, it's a little bit complicated because in each of those trial sites there are different um, pe uh, pe people who are on different payments that are compulsorily forced onto the card. So in some of the trial sites there would be people on the 
um, disability support pension, um, for example, that are on um, the card. In other trial sites, it's mostly people on the job seeker payments, um, and there are age um, sort of, you know, there are ages factored in in some of the trial sites, like in, in the one in Queensland, in, in Bundaberg and Harvey Bay. In Cape York, there, the, the card works a little bit differently, and it, it just gets into the weeds a little bit, but there's a, um, a, an organisation called the Family Responsibilities Commission, um, which is uh, an Aboriginal-led um, statutory authority in Queensland, which basically determines whether or not people in that small Cape York trial are put onto the card after there's kind of a process where, um, you know, um, community leaders will sort of determine that. And in that trial site, there are a handful, um, I think maybe even as many as 20 people who are on the age pension who are on um, the cashless debit card. Um, so combining that fact and the fact that the minister, Anne Rustin, has made some comments in the past where she has talked about a desire to expand the use of the card um, and the Prime Minister as well who said that Labor is essentially running a, um, a campaign, I think it would be fair to say a scare campaign, saying that the government, the coalition government in the future would be putting age pensioners onto the card. Um, the, the government um, basically says that's a, a lie and they've ruled out doing that um, in you know no uncertain terms repeatedly it's one of those ones where um you know we're, we're sort of arguing about something that hasn't happened yet and it's in the future right so no one can really say either way what's true and what's not all we can say is the government says it's not going to do this um and re repeatedly said that and labor says well you you can't believe them they will um I mean, my personal take is that it would be uh, the most baffling political decision of, of many, many uh, decades if the government were to put age pensioners onto the card um, because um, it would be uh, electorally disastrous for them. So I can't see why they would do that. But I would be much more, um, I would be much less surprised if they the card into more trial sites uh, with a view to, you know, putting more people on it. For example, Pauline Hanson has said that she'd like to have everybody under the age of 35 or 30 on, who are on payments on the cashless debit card. Now, that's the sort of thing that I could imagine would be um, politically not, you know, wouldn't be the same as the age pension situation. And I could imagine that's something that a government in future might want to do, a coalition government. And the, the Prime Minister himself has, has spoken very favourably about the cashless debit card um, and it, the possibility of expanding it in the past. So I guess that's where it's at. Um, but it certainly has been a, a big uh, talking point in the past week in the election campaign. Yeah, and in the Sky News debate that Scott Morrison, leader of the Liberal Party, was answering a question on that particular issue, particularly the cashless debit card, and he was saying... I guess framing it in a way of, well, these people are vulnerable and we're just there to help and support them make the right choices, which really seemed quite paternalistic to me in the way that he was framing it and also a bit condescending. But others have pointed out, particularly from the Indigenous community, that this card at the moment 
is very much targeted at and affecting Aboriginal Australians. And, you know, if we take out the aged pension question and just look at where else it could be extended uh, and where it's currently being targeted, uh, I think some people would even argue that its current use is not okay. And so, therefore, we have seen Labor come in and uh, differentiate themselves, haven't we? We have. And um, I suspect that, just a brief aside, I suspect that the sort of age pension campaign thing that the Labor is doing is kind of a um, way to um, not lose political skin over its very clear pledge that it will scrap the cashless debit card and also scrap uh, scrap the basics card, which is a card that was introduced during the intervention um, and only applied to um, Aboriginal people in remote communities. It was since expanded and it has been applying to um, people with a range, in a range of circumstances who are compulsorily put onto the card across all of the Northern Territory. So one thing that I think is really interesting is that, you know, I think the cashless debit card, there are, off the top of my head, about 15,000 people, give or take it, in, on the card across the various trial sites. And there are about 25,000 people in the Northern Territory on the basics card, right? And this is something that's been going on for years and years and years. And Aboriginal people have been saying for years and years and years, this is a, you know, this income management system is, as you said, paternalistic, um, it's condescending. Um, and, you know, it, it basically violates a person's human rights to, to, um, to do what they would like with money that the government has determined is they're entitled to, right? So, um, the Labor commitment is not only to scrap the cashless debit card and the way they would do that is the existing trial sites, they would just not continue them basically um, and they say they will replace the card with different, um, you know, what they call wraparound services, things like um, financial counselling and, and, and the like. But they would also scrap the um, basics card um, as a compulsory program in in the Northern Territory and that what that would mean, mean is that, you know, more than 20,000 people who are at the moment getting half their payments onto a basics card, which can only be used in the limited circumstances that you described before, they would have the ability to, to come off the card and just have their payments um, paid into their bank account like anybody else in the country, like uh, people who are listening to this in, in Melbourne right now who might be on the job seeker payment or other payments, you know, those payments are paid into their bank account. Um, and what the Labor commitment means is that in the Northern Territory, the, those people will be afforded the same right, um, which I think is really significant. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you've reported that only 2,400 of the people on the basics card are doing so on a voluntary basis. So that's about 22,000 who aren't choosing uh, to do that. And it's a compulsory situation. So I'm really glad there is a differentiation there between the two parties, at least on one particular area that does matter. There's also the NDIS, which yes. is something that we have also talked about in great detail, especially when the independent assessments controversy came up and the government was really seeking to change the way that people were assessed and that assessment would then inform their plans. And we have heard some real concerns and people who are very upset, rightly so, about the government at the moment, or the um, they're now a caretaker government, but the coalition government had been 
essentially cutting people's NDIS plans by thousands of dollars and a number of people were having to go through a very rigorous um, and gruelling process to challenge that through the tribunals. So I wonder, given that you have been reporting on this in a lot of detail and you've been speaking to people on the NDIS, could you take us through that situation and then we can look at the two parties and where they stand? Uh, sure. So I think the the best, maybe the best way to describe this is that in in the, in the NDIS, you kind of there's almost been sort of two competing storylines going on at the moment. Where the the scheme itself, the cost of the scheme, which is essentially the payments that um, are made to people on it um, to cover their support packages, um, the the overall cost has been expanding, increasing quite significantly. Um, over some time, um, or at least since maybe, you know, for the past 12 to 18 months, and it's projected to increase in scope and size significantly in, in the next um, 10 years. But at the same time as that is occurring, you also have a situation where people who are already on the scheme are having their plans um, cut, and there are... Um, so many cases that have been raised, um, you know, with me on, on in different media outlets, um, MPs, officers being contacted about these, where people have just got had support that's been covered for a year or two years, or maybe the entire time they've been in the scheme, and then they've had their most recent um, plan review because people's packages are reviewed on a regular basis, usually, you know, after 12 months, um, and they have a review and things that have been paid for by the NDIS have been cut. The NDIS is saying things like, you know, that that's no longer value for money uh, or that's a parental responsibility and shouldn't be funded by the NDIS. So there's been some sort of internal tightening of the, um, the decisions, the plan decisions that are made that affect people's packages. But in the sort of macro level, you have a situation where the overall plan, uh, overall scheme um, is increasing in, in costs. Uh, and so the government and some of the uh, I guess, media that are maybe a little bit less supportive of the scope of the scheme are sort of saying, well, the NDIS is costing too much money. Um, and then, but then on the ground, people who are actually on it are saying, well, what are you talking about? Like we're, we're having our plans cut. We're having, you know, vital, maybe it's therapies, maybe it's support worker hours, maybe it's something else. We're having that taken away from us and it's making our life, um, you know, increasingly difficult. So that's kind of the situation and I think the government knows that the NDIS is popular um, and so it doesn't really want to talk about cuts too much at the moment but I wouldn't be surprised, you know, if, if that's something that they're, they're looking at after the election. That's kind of where it's at. There's kind of a dual storyline. The, the macro issue is kind of oh, the, the scheme's costing too much money, but that's really because there are more people going onto the scheme and that's for a range of reasons. Basically, the existing state-funded um, services, things like mental health, um, education services for people with disability, things like that, are not getting the funding they need. So everyone thinks, I need to get onto the NDIS. This is the only way I'm going to get the support that, I that my family needs, basically. That's the dynamic. Well, I know that the NDIS only covers 10% of the total population of people in Australia who have a disability. 
and women and girls only make up 37% of participants. So we have seen groups like Women with Disabilities Australia advocating that uh, the NDIS should actually be expanded to include a range of people who are severely disabled but don't currently fit the very specific and narrow criteria that is involved with the NDIS as well as the disability support pension. Um, so I thought that was quite interesting, uh, as well as the other kind of narrative that Labor is running in opposition to what you were saying there about the coalition and how much mm -hmm. it's costing, which is this argument that, well, Actually, the NDIS is providing great economic stimulus and social advantages as well, uh, including obviously the number of staff that go into the industry, but also then people with a disability are able to participate in society, whether that is going to university or having a job or doing any other thing that makes them fulfilled as a human being. If we look at the metrics in terms of the benefits, Elle Gibbs has done a great thread a few mm. days ago laying out some of the great benefits, including that the NDIS would only have to produce an annual gain of $3,800 per participant to meet a cost-benefit test, which is what uh, the Productivity Commission has said. Uh, we've seen so many different figures running around. I wonder what your response is to that. Do you think that's a true and fair argument around critics of the NDIS? Um, I think it is, it is a really important response because often, um, and as I sort of was pointing out before, the, the in Canberra and in the national media, the NDIS is kind of um, is viewed as... Um, only in terms of how much it's costing the federal government, um, and then there's kind of will be a kind of um, as, as an aside. Yes, we acknowledge that it helps people, um, et cetera, et cetera. But I mean, there's also there are economic benefits to the NDIS, uh, you know, and you sort of touched on them. I mean, it means that people who otherwise couldn't work, couldn't study, couldn't participate in the economy are able to do so. And then, as you mentioned, there's also, um, you know, thousands and thousands of people who are employed directly or indirectly through the NDIS because it exists. So I think that the debate needs to cover and include that perspective as well. If we're only going to talk about the cost to the federal government without talking about the um, the benefit, not only from a social perspective, but from an economic perspective, it's really not telling telling the whole story. So I think um, Elle's point is is really salient. And I think, you know, that per capita has had, had research which finds, you know, similarly that there is, um, you know, the, the NDIS um, contributes, I think it's $2 to, $2 to um, gain for everyone, a dollar spent by the government, you know, $2 uh, benefit to the economy. Um, these are all, you know, forecasts and and models and the like, and they're always imprecise, but I think it just tells you that um, it's not as simple as some sort of situation where people with disability are, are merely getting, um, you know, these services and supports um, and there's no flow on to, um, to the rest of the economy. There is. Yeah, and I think it assumes completely wrongly so that people with disability are these kind of passive individuals who aren't mobile, who aren't doing things, who don't want to engage, which is just completely the opposite of the situation. I know it's true that so many people feel hamstrung and frustrated by their disability at times, despite, you know, people saying 
they also do feel blessed at times because of what they've learnt and the inner reserves they've got. But I think it's really clear that when politicians don't understand or don't know people with a disability and don't have that understanding of their true contributions to society, whether that is economic, but there are many other measures. So, yeah, I think it's quite stark. And I wanted to draw now on Labor because they Mm -hmm. have announced an NDIS policy. Bill Shorten, the minister and, you know, one of the key architects of the NDIS with Julia Gillard, he's come out um, and announced a massive overhaul of the NDIS. So could you take us through just like the key areas that Labor believes needs to be changed and and what your assessment is of them? Uh, Sure. So firstly, they've announced a review um, which would look at the scheme's design and sustainability, um, and that will probably address some of the issues that we talked about before. But they've also um, said they're going to increase the number of staff in the agency, um, and that's really important because... Um, you know, in terms of getting the right plans and, and planners having enough time to, to speak with um, the people that they are assessing in order to ensure they've got the right supports, that's really important. They've um, One of the things that um, Bill Shorten and Labor have sort of touched on to try and counter the um, narrative about the NDIS being increasingly expect- expensive is the idea of cracking down on um, so-called cowboy providers and um, and also the consultants' contracts, um, and that could be, um, you know, consultants' contracts for things like internal um, research and evaluation, but also things like, um, you know, external law firms who are contracted to um, contest tribunal uh, matters against people with disability who are, you know, challenging cuts to their plans or or things like that. I think on that that latter point, probably more detail is required. I'm not sure how much could actually be gained um, financially from that, but in saying that, um, it's certainly, um, in, you know, that the spending on external law firms, it's about $30 million over the past um, financial year so far is quite um, wow. outrageous and that you know to set that up that what that means is um, the NDIA which runs the NDIS um, contracts um, lo- um, lawyers or law firms who will then t- manage a case against a person with disability who's saying who's gone to the AAT because they're unhappy that the NDIS has cut their funding or denied them um, uh, support for you know some sort of home modification or things like that and you have a situation where people with disability, sometimes represented by um, community advocacy or, or, or things like that, but often not, are going to the AAT. And um, the, meanwhile, the agencies put um, a private law firm, um, funded a private law firm to contest that matter. So it's it sort of, you know, I think most people would say that that's um, it's not really something that should be happening on a regular basis, but the fact is that it is. Mm. Um, Bill Shorten has also announced to sort of address that issue, he wants a new um, review system. So just I'll try and explain this quickly, but at the moment the way the system works is that, you know, if you have a decision made by the NDIS, you can ask the NDIS to review it internally and then after that if you're still not satisfied, you go to the uh, Administrative Appeals Tribunal, which is sort of um, a, a tribunal that um, reviews government decisions, whether that's Centrelink, migration, NDIS, things like that. Um, that's a really lengthy process. It's just it's sort of a quasi-court 
court type situation. Um, and there's been a 400% increase in the number of NDIS participants who are going through that process because of things like cuts. So what Bill Shorten wants to do is say, instead of doing that, we'll have more of a mediation type process that would be run by experts and, and keep those cases out of the AAT, where presumably only the cases that are, um, I guess, much more contested would be um, go to an AAT um, decision or AAT process. Instead, you'd have um, experts who would be appointed to mediate between the parties and that theoretically should also mean that the NDIA doesn't need to or it doesn't have to uh, contract uh, private uh, law firms to, to handle those matters at the AAT. Those are some of the things that um, Labor is proposing. Um, I think certainly more detail is is needed, but um, I think the reviews sort of they they're at least touching on some of the problems that people are having on on the ground. Some of those sort of bureaucratic red tape type frustrations people are having. Certainly, they are speaking to those problems, and I think the sector in general um, was fairly supportive of what they've put forward. And Luke, looking at the Greens plan. Just to kind of make a comparison, they said too that they would like to lift the staffing cap from 3,300 to at least 10,000 staff. Um, they wanted a new ICT system, better support for people who want assistance animals. But importantly, they want to make sure that we scrap compulsory independent assessments altogether. And that's something that the Greens have campaigned very heavily on, including uh, Jordan Steele-John, the senator uh, for the Greens. And I wonder, what are the stances of the major parties on independent assessments? Is there a difference between the Liberal Nationals and the Labor Party? Well, the, the government's position so far, so the, the independent assessments um, proposal that was put forward last year, um, which basically would mean that people would be assessed by an allied health professional rather than their own um, treating doctor, the government has, um, well, it scrapped that and um, basically said, we're going back to the drawing board. Um, and so um, it says that it's not their policy at the moment, but it is also in the process of um, uh, coming up with a new uh, response to what it sees as the issues in, in the eligibility and assessments process. So we don't really know what the government will say after the election about what it wants to bring forward because I think we can ex accept that they do believe that there's a problem. Yeah. Um, Labor says, uh, and, you know, Labor and the Greens were absolutely uh, adamant that this would be a disaster if that proposal was to, to go ahead and, um, you know, they were supported or um, that they, um, you know, that was the position of the um, advocacy um, peaks as well. Um, so they're saying basically independent assessments are a no-go. Let's not have them. We cannot have them. Um, so, but, I mean, I think if Labor is proposing a review into the design and, and the sustainability of the scheme, I imagine that they will have to grapple with some of the same questions that the coalition believes exist too. But because the other thing about the assessments issue is that even though the, you know, proposal that the government put forward was, you know, universally panned basically, um, there is one, there is an issue with assessments for some people, which is that it's actually really costly to get um, the um information or the, um, you know, um, 
to, to uh, get the uh, evidence, medical evidence from your treating specialist or from other specialists. And many times people spend a lot of time trying to get that um, evidence. Um, and it's quite one of the barriers to, to the scheme. So that's an issue which, um, you know, does actually need to be addressed. But I think just the, the sector and clearly Labor and the Greens as well think that the independent assessments proposal where everyone would compulsorily need to do one is not the way to do that. So there are issues that need to be grappled with, but um, I think there are there's certainly a difference in philosophy about potentially how to do that, but should be noted that the government at the moment is saying we're not doing independent assessments, those are off the table. Yeah. Gosh, thank you so much for taking us through all of these really key areas, Luke. It's uh, really impressive just how deep your knowledge is on these topics and we're very grateful to you for taking us through it. And um, I think that I feel far better informed now in this area and can make a better informed decision and I hope others listening feel the same way. And um, I wish you all the best for the next three weeks. <laughs> <laughs> and, and to you, you'll be uh, yeah. breaking down the different uh, policies. So uh, I will. Yeah, good luck to you too. I hope it's... Uh, uh, I think today's been really useful, so I hope yeah. it has been for the listeners as well. Same. Thank you so much, Luke. I really appreciate it. No worries. I've just been speaking with Luke Enrique Gomez. He is The Guardian Australia's Social Affairs and Inequality Editor, and we've been talking about social policy, welfare policy and the NDIS, and it's part of a federal election policy series that I decided to start to fill some of the gaps that currently exist in the media coverage of the election. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website, rrr.org.au. And it's my absolute pleasure to welcome onto this show John Fain, who is known to pretty much everyone in Melbourne, I would hope, but if he's not... He is a lawyer and an award-winning broadcaster who happened to host the agenda-setting morning broadcast program on ABC Radio 774. It was called Mornings and I was myself a very regular listener at the beginning due to my parents and later by choice. And he hosted that program for over 20 years. He also practiced for seven years in commercial litigation and in legal aid, um, including the Fitzroy Legal Aid Service, which does come up in this wonderful book that John has written. And uh, also, I was really interested that he hosted the Law Report on RN on ABC before he went into uh, morning radio. So we're here today to talk with John Fain about his book, Apollo and Thelma, A True Tall Tale. It's out through Hardy Grant Books. And as I said, it is my real pleasure to welcome John onto the show. Hi there, John. And it's my pleasure to join you, Amy, and hello to everybody who's listening. Indeed. I've got to say it's really exciting for me to interview you for a second time, which I don't think you'll remember the first because I was a very, very nerdy year 12 student who was doing media studies and reached out to you in 2006 to interview you for my documentary about uh, youth political apathy. So now now that I look back on that, it was quite ambitious, but I, I appreciate your time then as much as I do now. Well, good on you for having had a go and... Uh, was I horrible to you? No, no, no. You were very kind. I'm, I'm reassured. Yeah. John, it's so hard to know where to start in Apollo and Thelma because there are so many parts to this story and it is just enthralling to read. I did read the entire book and it's oh, just... You. Yeah, no, every page was 
a page turner, I've got to say. I just loved the way that you wrote it. And I think in particular, you take us into your confidence in a way that is really warm and generous. I kind of read it thinking of you having a bit of a twinkle in your eye when you were perhaps writing it, because a lot of mischief comes through as well. Thank you. And I guess, I mean, it's a pretty untidy book according to the the conventions of publishing. It's not about just one thing. But it's up to you to tell me whether or not I managed to connect all the different strands. It's a bit untidy, but then our minds are usually untidy too, aren't they? So what happened is I, I had this, the nucleus of the story, which is Apollo and Thelma's stories, and then it grew from there. And as it grew, I guess I, I sort of trusted myself to follow the threads, to tease out the threads and chase them. And then somehow make sure that they all came together again and uh, it's, it's up to you and others who read it to tell me whether I've succeeded or not, but certainly that that was my ambition. Well, I think you succeeded. Uh, when I read the, the description, I was apprehensive because I did wonder how it could all fit together in this neat story, but it really does. And the same characters keep appearing. So, you know, you see people like Frank Hardy, Gough Whitlam. There's just many, many pieces that come back together. Some of your old colleagues from, you know, legal days stop in and people from Darwin multiple times. So it is a really fascinating story because it's touching on personal biography, but also it's really bringing out some very important, broader societal issues, which I hope we'll get to in a bit of detail later on in this chat. But first of all, I wanted to introduce the characters of of the title of the book, Apollo and Thelma. I grew up not knowing who the mighty Apollo was or is, but I did check out the National Film and Sound Archives after reading this book because I wanted to know, was it really true? Like, could he have possibly done this? And I know you say you were pretty sceptical too. So could you tell us a bit about the mighty Apollo? Sure. He became my favourite client when I was a baby lawyer back in 1982. And he came into the law firm. I'd done articles in 81 and I was a first year solicitor in 82. And my boss was a commercial litigator and I was being trained to become one too. And I did. And uh, he called me into his office one day and said, we've got some new clients coming in. I want you to sit in on the initial conference uh, because you'll probably have the carriage of this. And I thus met Paul Alexander McPherson Anderson and his three then teenage sons. They'd inherited the estate of Paul's sister. Thelma. So Paul is Apollo, the mighty Apollo, the world's strongest man, although I didn't know it at the time. He was just a fitness instructor as best as I knew. And his sister died very suddenly at a place called Top Springs in the Northern Territory. And she had a pub. She'd for years and years and years, she'd run a pub on her own in the middle of the roughest part of the outback, which is quite a remarkable thing. And she died very unexpectedly and suddenly. And she'd left her estate to her nephews in Melbourne. And because they were underage, Their father, the mighty Apollo, was their guardian and became the person who I had to liaise with in order to work out how to sort out what in fact turned out to be a a very quirky and in some ways complex estate full of all sorts of twists and turns, which captivated me. But more than just the dry legal story of the estate, because that's not what the book's about, it's the background to the book. I got to know Apollo as my client. And as I say in the opening line of the book, I I got to know Thelma. I only met Thelma Hawkes after she died. Her brother, the mighty Apollo, introduced us. To tell you their story, I have to tell you some of mine. And it dawned on me that by being a lawyer doing a probate, you actually are getting to know the deceased, whose estate you're administering. 
And over time, and it took many, many years to resolve this estate for a whole range of reasons that are explained in the book, but I'm happy to go into them if you want to, but some of them are hilarious and some of them are, are outrageous. Uh, but I, over the years, had to try and unpick the various knots that came up from the death of Thelma Hawkes. The characters are rich, and even back then, even though I hadn't even dreamt of going to work in the media, I knew that this was unusual, that this was rich, exceptional material, that, that they were fascinating people. And in fact, Apollo, the, the mighty Apollo, the, the client, became my favourite client, and I became quite fond of him. And I, I certainly hope that's how he comes across as a charismatic and enigmatic figure and um, someone I dealt with over many years. Yeah, he was appealing to me in many ways. I also very much empathised with him as a person. I could see that he had this confidence and a focus on himself as this... He's very vain, yeah. Yeah, that this kind of all-encompassing mighty Apollo identity that ruled his life. I'm not sure whether he let it rule him or vice versa, but it just was so fascinating to understand that a person had that much self-belief in themselves. Oh, extraordinary. He could do things, and this is inexplicable, even now. Mm. And I've spent years doing this. I mean, this was back in 1981, 82. I've, I've lived with this story for 40 years, and I still don't understand how he could do the things he could do. And when you say, Amy, that you, you empathise with him, I, I'm sure you haven't had an elephant stand on you and survived to talk about it, and you haven't pulled a tram down the main street of Melbourne with a toggle in your teeth. And you haven't done all those feats of strength lying on a bed of nails while cars drive over your body. I mean, he did these things. And even to this day, nobody can understand how he was able to do these things. He said mm. he had cosmic powers. He had special powers. And I'm not sure he had cosmic powers of strength, although he was phenomenally strong. But I'm pretty sure he had some special power that meant he couldn't feel pain the way everybody else does. He could block out pain and that way do things the rest of us can't do. And it's quite inexplicable. And I, I spend a bit of time in the book trying to work it out. And I don't think at any point I, I never come up with a clear answer. It is, it is a puzzle. I mean, maybe he did have special powers. Maybe he did. We'll never know. Yeah, it seems like a medical or scientific mystery to me in a way. And maybe he had thicker skin, like quite literally, because as you show, there's a photo of him after lying on the bed of nails and he's not like dripping blood or anything. There are pinholes, but, you know, he just does seem superhuman in many respects. And the fact that he did that elephant uh, wasn't a stunt, as you point out. He'd get very cross <laughs> if you said anything was a stunt he would correct you and say, no, these aren't stunts. Stunts are like what magicians do where they trick people. No, no, these are genuine feats of strength. And mm. I am the world's strongest man. Now, you know, he wasn't a huge man. In fact, he was shorter than me. You know, he was five and a half feet tall, not even. Uh, but as one of his sons, his youngest son, Bruce, says, he was built like a fire plug, like a fire hydrant. You just couldn't knock him over. And even when he was at the sort of age, I'm 65 now, and when he was my age and older, he was still doing extraordinary challenges. He would do them for charity. He would do them for the community good. And he just got a kick out of it. And he was still at a time when most men uh, of his age would be, you know, down the bowls club or sitting back and reading a good book. He was out there having cars drive over his body while he lay on a bed of nails. I and mean, it's just, it's, it's unbelievable. 
Yeah, well, the elephant did actually stand on him twice, as you say, because they needed to do it a second time for the record books. Yes, and and the cameras, and you know he, you know he, he suffered terrible injuries from it, but he did live to talk mm. about it, and you know, it's quite extraordinary if you stop and think, okay, an elephant stood on his body, and he used to do another thing where he would have there'd be a tug of war with two teams on either side of him with the rope around his neck. And he would defy them wow. to choke him. And he had a very raspy voice. And um, some of the National Film and Sound Archive material, you might have found some of the newsreel material and other things. There's a bit on the internet about him. And he had this very raspy voice, very raspy voice. And that was because he'd suffered a number of throat injuries in the course of doing some of his extraordinary feats of strength. But uh, it, it, it never stopped him. It didn't matter what happened to him. It didn't stop him. He kept going. And Thelma, so I never met Thelma because she died. That's why I got involved because we were doing her probate. But I, once I became fascinated with their story and I started work at the ABC, anytime I went up to Darwin in the Northern Territory for work, I'd look for people who had stories to tell about Thelma Hawkes and the Top Springs pub. And the pub's still there. It's, you know, it's still running. It's at the intersection of two dirt roads. It's two and a half hours west of Catherine, heading towards Western Australia. In the middle of absolutely nowhere, there's this pub that's been built. Originally, it was a trading store and it was built for the for the mustering along what's called the Murunjai Track. There used to be enormous herds of cattle that were taken to market from the huge cattle stations that are the size of European nations up there. And this was the store at a watering hole. And then it became a pub and then Thelma, after various suspicious fires, two of them, she'd rebuild it bigger and bigger. And then she built this enormous structure that's completely out of keeping with the area. And that was her empire. And she ran it with a, with a pistol in her pocket and uh, a formidable reputation. And she amassed a considerable fortune. And then she very suddenly died. And there's a story which we won't perhaps give away about a cop and a frog and a dog and a tin full of cash and that was part of the foundation story of the estate and it had me absolutely intrigued and uh, I thought wow she's a character I mean a woman on her own running a pub in the middle of the outback for decades and ruling it with an iron fist I mean she had a fearsome reputation and a terrible nickname which I do reveal I don't know if you want me to reveal it on your program Amy I'll go for it John okay well her nickname was old leather tits and she was regarded as you know, she was a bit of a looker in her younger years, but as she got older, people were just scared of her, basically, because she was ferocious. She also had a reputation for being somewhat enamoured with money. And she and her husband, Sid Hawkes, who I met and interviewed at length in Darwin many years ago, they fell out over money. And as he says, she just loved, she worshipped money and nothing would get in the way of Thelma Hawkes getting to some money, including her marriage. And he blames himself a bit for the collapse of the marriage and says, oh, I was away because he was a truck driver and he was running a fleet of trucks and he was away a lot. And he said, but then he came back and found she was stealing their money and socking it away in secret bank accounts. And he thought, oh, she's going to do a runner and leave me with all the debts and disappear with all the cash. Uh, and he said, oh, I realised what was going on and worked out, and I love this phrase, I worked out we were going to have to split the blanket I've never, I've never heard anyone else use that phrase for a divorce, but um, it's a messy, messy parting of the ways, as I explain in the book. And Sid's an extraordinary character, her ex-husband. There's a whole chapter devoted to him, but he could, quite frankly, Amy, he could be a book on his own. 
and Sid tells a lot of the background to what was going on at Top Springs when they first set up after World War II. They went up to the Northern Territory on a tip-off from a mate of his in the army who said, you know, um, they're going to do the railway line from Adelaide to Alice Springs to Darwin and there'll be a spur line out to the big cattle stations out in the Victoria River District and whoever sets up a store where the railway station is will make a fortune. So on the basis that there was going to be a railway station somewhere near Top Springs, they went and set up a store. And of course, this is 50, 60, 70 years on now, actually. And the the, the railway lines, the spur line out to Victoria River District has still not been built and never will be because road trains made that sort of redundant. But um, ironically, the Alice Springs to Darwin railway line has finally and at last been built, but long after Thelma or Sid ever didn't live to see it. So they set up a little store, then that became a pub and then it became a bigger and a bigger business and then they split up and Sid disappeared and Thelma stayed on and there's a lot of stories from people. I mean, the Territory, I don't know if you've ever been, but it's just full of characters and as I started going up and the first time I went was in 1982 for Thelma's estate, I just fell in love with the place even though I was such a wet-behind-the-ears, nerdy kind of Melbourne lawyer and I was so out of place, but I loved it and I've been going back ever since. Yeah, well, it comes through. It definitely comes through, the love for the Territory and, and the people there who are very unique, as you show and demonstrate. Everyone's a character. Yeah. Every single one's a character. And the Territory, you know, they crack jokes about themselves, but it is rich. Um, there's a lot of people up there who are running away from things and there's a lot of people up there who just prefer the lifestyle and it's exotic and it's different and it's real frontier stuff, although a little less now than it was even in the 1980s when I was first up there, let alone the 1950s when Thelma and Sid went up there. But the old timers, and they're a disappearing and vanishing breed now, they've got fabulous stories. And I just, I loved in the in the 80s and 90s, sitting down, talking to them, recording their yarns, and then a lot of that material, which was recorded on cassette, way back in the day, a lot of that material is reproduced in the book as uh, as part of the context of this whole story. And it leads down and, you know, we have to come to grips with this. Um, and, and, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm used to asking the questions, Amy, not answering them, but we, we, we end up, I end up through a circuitous route, and you mentioned Frank Hardy before, but I end up drawing a link between Thelma and her pub at Top Springs and one of the most famous episodes in the struggle for land rights in Australia, which is the Gurindji walk-off. And the whole, you know, the Gurindji walk-off is, you know, from little things, big things grow. It's that story, the Kev Carmody and Paul Kelly song, and also that iconic photo of Gough Whitlam pouring dirt into the hands of an Aboriginal stockman whose name is Vincent Lingiari. And that's the Gurindji walk-off. And Thelma's pub is the nearest pub to the cattle station Wave Hill where that all took place. And um, through my chance encounter at the ABC with Frank Hardy and then starting to collaborate with him on a few little projects which I explain in the book, I ended up revisiting and re-researching the Gurindji walk-off and uh, it took me down some fairly troubling paths, but um, ones I, I don't for a moment apologise for uh, for bringing up in the context of this story because um, some of the stuff I read, some of the stuff I learned, it's the old, you know, you can't unsee it and we have to stop looking away. And we're talking about massacres and we're talking about colonial era rape uh, consistently. And Mm. once I, and I, I had a reputation at the ABC for being a kind of fearless broadcaster, I suppose, if I was described in a word, and being able to ask and being prepared to ask the mongrel question uh, as Tony Abbott once said, he introduced me to Margie at the Boxing Day cricket test one year and 
he said, oh, Margie, this is John Fain. He's the ABC's Melbourne host. And uh, he's an equal opportunity mongrel. <laughs> he asks everyone the hard questions. And I said, thank you, Tony. That's the best job description anyone's ever given me. And I'll quote you, and I do. And having that reputation meant when I learned about the history of some of these massacres and some of what had gone on in the Territory back in the day, I was not prepared to leave it out. I was not prepared to say, oh, that's all a bit unpleasant. Let's pretend I didn't know that. And for personal reasons, which I also reveal, I decided this has to be part. And in context, it fits in. This has to be part of the story. And so it is. It's true. And it's part of your personal story, as you show, because your stepson, Nigel, is of Aboriginal heritage. And that's a really interesting part of the story as well. And it's so great to understand how that might have influenced you in this book. It absolutely has. And I, I've, you know, I had to negotiate permission from not just Nigel, who's our eldest son and his brother, Jack, but particularly my wife, Jan. And I had to get permission from the individual people to include their story. But it's not done gratuitously. It's done because it's part of my rationale and it's part of my motivation for breaking a what really is a 30-year silence. I mean, I've been at the ABC. I was there for 30 years. And in all that time, this was a much bitten tongue, uh, but not anymore. And the reasons I explain in the book, it's to do with what I regard as embedded and deep-seated racism in the Australian psyche and in our culture. And I've seen it with my own eyes. I've never talked about it. But I have had that situation where Jan and I are up visiting relatives in Queensland who are Aboriginal and we've been on holiday with them and we've said, oh, look, let's go and have some lunch. There's a cafe and there's no parking. Okay, well, look, you know, I'll drop you, Joe and Pat, we'll drop you at the cafe and we'll come back when we've got a park. We drive around the block, we get a park, we come back and they're standing outside the cafe and we go, oh, what's wrong? And they go, oh, they say they're full. And I go, I can see through the window, there's lots of empty tables. Well, they said they were full. They must be reserved. And I go, no, that's bullshit. So I'll go into the cafe and say, have you got a table for four? And they'll go, yes, certainly, Sue. Would you like that one in the window? And I go, yeah, sure. I'll just go and get my family from outside. And when Joe and Pat walk in, jaws drop and people gape. And you just go, I can't believe this just happened, but it did. And that was not, that was only a few years ago. And we could talk till the cows come home. I could give you anecdotes and accounts and stories, um, some worse and some more trivial, but equally, equally hurtful. And, you know, Jews don't have a monopoly on guilt or nor do Jews have a monopoly on suffering, but it's my background and my, my family background coming from the Jewish community that I think makes you even more aware and sensitive to these things. And when I saw the same sort of prejudice impacting on my son and his family, I got pretty pissed off and I've thought, okay, I'll, I'll add my voice to all those others and some of them much more powerful and, str and strident and uh, better placed than me, but I'll add my voice. I won't just sit there and go, oh, well, it's, it's private and with permission. I've uh, added some of these stories into the book. Mm. Well, we will talk about the Gurindji walk-off because I loved that part of the book. It is right towards the end uh, and you do quote quite heavily um, from your experiences going there and visiting and meeting some really wonderful locals and Aboriginals there who had first-hand experience or new people who did. So it was really wonderful to read about. But I want to also talk about the fact that this case that started with Thelma and her estate, I mean, it really did follow you around 
in a very uncanny way. It seemed to follow you from law firm to law firm to, you know, when you got to the legal service and you found a law firm, you could put it in so you could still work on it. So it seems like not only did it follow you, but you wanted it to kind of follow you perhaps. Well, I didn't want to lose the personal connection because apart from anything else, they were not your typical clients. I mean, they weren't commercially savvy and sophisticated and I didn't want them to go through the um, the distress and the additional expense that would be involved in having to start all over again with another lawyer. It was much easier because it was so quirky. It was much easier just for me to finish it. So I went from one law firm to another and it's a, it's regarded as poor etiquette to steal a file from a law firm. But at the same time, it's understood that if you're deeply embedded in a particular case, you can take it with you. So the costs had to be paid for the first law firm where I'd been working at Barker Hardy and then I took it with me to Holding Redlick where I did commercial litigation. And then when I left Holding Redlick, it was kind of three quarters finished. But you can't really look after a contested deceased estate in the Northern Territory while you're working at Fitzroy Legal Service. So I had some mates up the street and they were volunteers at the legal service and they were good friends and they ran a small law firm. And I said, look, can you can you be on the record for this file? But when anything needs doing, I'll just pop in and I'll read the letter, I'll draft the reply, and then you can sign it and send it and we'll keep doing it with me just being a kind of, you know, advisor. And it, it was perfect. It meant that there was no disruption to the family and I could finish it off even though I was a legal aid lawyer by then. And then I thought it was all over. Yes, you're quite right. It kept following me. It kept popping up again and again and again later in my life. And it sort of became like one of those, you know, those dinner table stories where at a dinner party when you've had a glass of wine too many and you start kind of rabbiting on, it, it became one of those. And then over the years, I thought, you know, there's more to this than I know. There's a whole lot here. There's gaps in this. And I reckon I can fill them in. So that's when I started interviewing people and recording on cassette all these stories about the Territory and about Apollo and chasing up different leads. And I, I had a whole box, I had a cardboard box full of stuff about Apollo and Thelma and I'd sort of toss things in whenever I found them. And then as I got busier and busier at the ABC, that box went from the back of the corner of the study, it went onto the bookshelf, then it went up the top of the bookshelf and then it went to the back corner and I kind of half forgot about it and then... Uh, after I left the ABC and I had a kind of, you know, what am I going to do now moment, I thought, well, I've always said I'm going to tell Apollo and Thelma the story, so I'm either going to do it now or I've got to stop pretending and stop bullshitting myself that I'm actually going to do it. If I don't do it now, I never will. So I got the box down and the first thing I did was I started listening to all my old interviews, some of which I'd done more than 20 years before. And it was hilarious because as soon as I started listening to them, it all came back. It was like you could almost smell the air and, you know, hear the birds in the background and all of that. And it all came back to life. And I thought, yep, there's definitely a yarn here. I just have to put the pieces of the puzzle together. And you do engage the three sons of the mighty Apollo, Paul, Mark and Bruce. Uh, Yes, and this is really important. I'll jump ahead. Yeah, I start the project with their full support and cooperation, but very distressingly for me, as I'm speaking to you now, they're a bit pissed off with me and I'm really upset. I was hoping that Paul would come and launch the book in, in Carlton at the readings shop. I gave him and his brothers, I gave them the first copies I got my hands on and I'm not going to dwell on this, but I just want it to be clear. Um, they're not entirely happy with the way I've described their family. For me, this is a story. For them, it's their lives. And they, I think they've got a kind of idealised memory of their father and I've described him as a complex character. I mean, for instance, I say he was vain and they're not happy with that. They don't think he was vain at all. They think he quite rightly was 
you know, he was proud of how he looked and how he dressed, but they don't accept that, for instance, it's fair to describe him as vain. And there's a number of other things they're not happy with. And that upsets me a great deal because I was, I was pretty sure I was writing something they'd be pleased with. And the fact that they're annoyed with me is it's taken a bit of the shine off the personal side of it, but the story is absolutely, I stand by every single word of it, but I'm upset that three people who are really important to it are, um, are annoyed and angry with me. Well, maybe they may not be as angry with you when they hear people like myself and others who read the book. I think others will be the same, and I've heard others say the same, that they truly do have a great affection for the mighty Apollo, and I never knew anything about him until I read this and book. And, Amy, that is almost word for word what I've said to them, that, mm. okay, so, you know, you didn't like this little line and you didn't like that word, but overall... That's not the impression people will get of your father. You're, you're kind of you're getting stuck on a few little things, and people are going to go, "Wow, what a guy!" And yeah, I hope, I really hope that they embrace it. I really do. But he was an he was an incredible figure. So you know, we 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 get into their stories too, which is really important and a terribly difficult part of the book, which I agonised over. And they're they're very happy with the way their personal stories are told because their stories are themselves as three small boys they were abandoned by their mother so Apollo was married to a woman called Rhonda who was one of the women he was working with in performances and they fell in love and then they had three children after they were married and she then vanished on them she shot through she ran away with one of the fitness instructors from the gym one of the martial arts instructors and she just vanished from their lives she dropped them at school one day and just wasn't there to pick them up after school and you know five seven and nine years old and your mother just disappears and they were put into institutional care and they were brutalized and they have given their account and that is they're very happy with the way all of that's described they have no quibble whatsoever two of them hate their mother one of them has a has a relationship with her the other two refuse to um bruce the youngest one he says when i was interviewing him for the book uh he said Rhonda, the bitch she ruined my life. I hope she rots in hell. And I went, yeah, okay. I, I understand how deep the pain is, Bruce, but what do you want me to put in the book? Rhonda, the bitch, she ruined my life. I hope she rots in hell. And I said, are you sure you really want that in the book? Hang on, John. Rhonda, the bitch, I hope she rots in hell. She ruined my life. Did you get that word for word? And the, the oldest son, Paul, won't even say her name. She's just the incubator. Now, I've never met anybody who refuses to say their mother's name and will call her only an incubator. That's the extent of the, the hurt that was caused, and those are their stories. And it's all in there as yet another kind of detour and but an important part of trying to understand Apollo and Thelma and what was going on. And I, her leaving Apollo had a massive effect on him as well as the children. I mean, he had a breakdown. And, I mean, I couldn't believe that those children, they were in state care for their entire childhood. Their mother said she wanted nothing to do with them at all. She was very, very clear about it, just no communication whatsoever. I can understand where they're coming from in terms of the way that they feel because it has actually affected their entire life trajectory and their father's. Totally. It's, it's an extraordinary thing. It's the most significant moment in their lives. And 
interestingly, they can't actually, between them, they can't agree on how it happened, but that's sort of almost irrelevant, but it's interesting how memory plays tricks. They've each got a different account of how they found out their mother had done a runner. But as it goes on through, you know, through the impact it had on their relationship with their father as well, because he couldn't look after them, and so they were left in state care until they were 18. And as I write, I was their lawyer. I had no idea because I dealt with Apollo. I didn't deal with the sons direct unless they needed some money and they wanted an advance on their inheritance, in which case I would arrange for them to be sent some money here and there. But I was dealing with Apollo and I didn't know they were going through this brutal time in foster care and state care. And with hindsight and looking back now, all these years later, you kind of go, well, geez, if I'd known that, what would I have done? Would I have done things differently? Did I let them down? Maybe by being a kind of commercial lawyer worrying about the money rather than their well-being, maybe I didn't do the right thing. So there's a bit of introspection there too and a bit of a reflection on the role of lawyers because I've always been fairly, um, well, I've, I've, I've been fairly critical of some aspects of the practice of law, having done it for long enough to kind of decide I didn't want to do it for the rest of my life. Uh, although culturally I'm more of a lawyer than a broadcaster or a journalist, but um I kind of look at it and go, well, maybe I didn't do such a flash job after all because I thought I'd done really well in sorting out this estate, getting rid of all the people who were claiming money for you know, a discount, making sure the boys got as much as possible. And maybe that wasn't the best thing. Maybe it would have been better to settle it up for less and quicker so they could then use the money to get out of care and go back to living with their dad. But um, hindsight's a great thing although they have all said no it wouldn't have worked he couldn't have look, looked after us as in fact I quote Bruce again the youngest one who says oh my dad wasn't like that if you asked him the time he'd tell you how you make a Swiss watch he was so caught up in his career his fame and running the gym uh, once Rhonda left he really didn't know what to do with three small boys and there was this kind of faint hope that you reference in the book about Thelma perhaps selling the pub or the inn in Top Springs and coming down to Melbourne to support the boys and live with them and Apollo. So there was always talk of that and it never happened. And mm. the middle son, Mark, has gone through and he says that his generation of kids who were put in care, they're like the stolen generation, you know, they're, they're a lost generation. And he got his records out from the welfare and he read through them and he says they... The welfare said, no, you're in state care and we won't release you to go and live in the Northern Territory in this remote pub and we don't accept, and um, as it turned out, it wasn't accepted, that that was in their best interests. But looking back now, you'd have to say, well, was it in their best interest to stay with these pretty rugged foster parents who were, you know, violent, abusive and not doing all that much for them? So that's another part of the story that has to be explored and is explored. And it, again, it was quite distressing to learn all of that. But again, you, you, can't, you can't just sort of, you can't airbrush this stuff out. Well, I really loved Bruce's description of his father, which I felt did reflect what you had written in the book. And I wanted to just quote him a little bit. Right at the end of the book, you say, he was far from a perfect father, an amazing man, but in lots of ways, a pretty crappy father with no sense of perspective. Everything else was secondary to his sense of himself. There is no point not being honest. I'm not bad mouthing him, just saying it how it was. He chased his fame at the cost of personal relationships and family. He made choices which he said were for business and he built that business and reputation all himself 
and was this larger-than-life figure, that takes a lot of maintenance. There were no tricks or fakery in what he did. He just devoted his whole life to being the mighty Apollo, whatever that meant. To me, that was a a really great, very honest encapsulation of the complexity of the man, but also very self-reflective coming from his own son. Yes, his youngest son. And Apollo, had, had he was one of these people who always had a saying for every situation. And one of his sayings was, to be great is to be misunderstood. And he believed that. He believed that the price he paid for being great was to be misunderstood, but that wouldn't stop him from pursuing greatness. Mm. I mean, I don't want to give away the kind of, you know, conclusion of the book, but, you know, effectively what we end up with is that his sister Thelma and Apollo, these two kids who grew up in Depression-era inner city, Collingwood, Carlton, uh, Clifton Hill, uh, he chased fame and she chased fortune. And he found fame and she found fortune but she died without ever getting to enjoy it. Whereas he found immortality because now there's a building and a street, a laneway where his gym used to be in in West Melbourne named after him, Mighty Apollo Lane. Actually, there's a cafe there at the moment as well called Mighty Apollo Cafe. So he did find the, the immortality that he wanted as his legacy. And it's, um, it's kind of neat way to tie a ribbon around at almost the end of the book. It was very neat. I, I did like that. <laughs> I, I highlighted far it too much here, Amy. <laughs> I know. Well, I did want to go to Thelma and we're back in Top Springs uh, because that is such a brilliant part of the story. There was a great character in that pub called Norm who was a pom who drank very heavily and didn't he even receive... He was an alcoholic. Receive... Come on, yes. call it for well, what he it was. was an alcoholic. Uh, he was and perpetually he... pissed. And had a few beers on the go at different points in the pub. And he actually slept outside practically on a camp bed. Like he just seemed to have under a veranda maybe you got a bit of shelter, but, you know, a very measly kind of existence and didn't even receive a wage. So his, he was the main claimant against the estate. He, after Thelma died, Norm, who'd worked for her for years and years and years as, as her loyal sidekick, Norm said, well, I had this deal with Thelma, which was I wouldn't draw a wage, but when she sold the pub one day, she'd pay me out half. So he claimed to own the pub. And so we had to fight him over whether or not he had a legitimate claim. And, of course, he had nothing in writing. And so we had to go forensically back through all the bank statements, which were kind of fictional because she didn't go to the bank. The bank was two and a half hours drive each way. So you're not going to do a five-hour drive to go to the bank. When she did go to a bank, either in Darwin or Catherine, it was usually to sock away, you know, ten dollars or $20,000 cash in a deposit. So there were no records of anything that we could rely upon. And he could neither produce records to prove his claim, but neither could we produce records to disprove it. But there's a there's a whole lot of toing and froing, and that's described in the book to the extent that it's necessary and relevant. But sometimes lawyers' work can be pretty boring too. But there were claimants against the estate from all over the place, and she was, you know, I said she was a rogue. You know, she was famous for if there was a a muster going through, some of the stockmen would be on in cars or trucks, and some of them would be on horseback. But everyone got charged for a drum of petrol, even if you were on a horse, you got charged for a drum of petrol, and. You know, if the kids from the nearby stations came in with mum to pick up some supplies and she'd offer them a lolly and then she'd put a box of lollies on their bill 
and stuff like that. But then there were far worse things. Stuff kept disappearing from deliveries for other stations and it would turn up in her back in her shop and all sorts of skullduggery that she was famous for. But most people's, you know, a lot of people spoke fondly of Thelma and said, yeah, she was a rogue, but hey, you know, she was in a pretty rough and tumble place and everyone did that sort of stuff. It was survival of the fittest. That's what it's like up there. And it's kind of true. It's pretty rough. Mm. I mean, this was a pub where when I went there in 1982, the windows didn't have glass in them and there was nothing on the floor. It was just bare concrete. And at the end of the day, the place just got hosed out. I mean, it's <laughs> rough as guts, rough as guts. It's yep. a little better now. In fact, it's a lot better now. But back then it was, it was rugged. Just slightly better than when it was a wooden shack. Yeah, which is how it started. I mean, they didn't yeah. have a permit. There's no such thing as permits up there. You just basically you set up camp and waited till someone said, oh, well, I guess you're there. You may as well stay. And then they, there's a whole lot of stories about the pub and about how it became a pub and how it burned down and, you know, some of the skullduggery mm. that went on, the picnic races and people disappearing and coming back and all sorts of stuff. It's all, it's all hilarious in hindsight, but at the time it must have been quite tumultuous. Well, I hope people get to read that part of the book and enjoy the funny side of things when there is a funny side, including the very overpriced beer and uh, when it costs more from the cold fridge. I can't really imagine having beer that isn't cold in the Northern Territory. It sounds quite disturbing to me. Uh, but Which I did is like why she knew the... everyone would pay the extra for yes. the cold stuff <laughs> when she claimed she needed to cover the cost of running the generator that kept the fridge cold. But of course, it was just a way of screwing everybody for a bit more money. And it worked. Yeah, it was what a classic. Yep. But there's a really excellent line that you um, point out that there was a saying about it. You said some of the white drovers would stop off there after a muster, sometimes for two or three weeks and just drink and drink. And the saying was, wander in and stagger out. And wander in was the name of the pub. So it sounds like that really was pretty much what it was all about. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've. I've got a bit of a problem with the Territory's uh, self-regard as, you know, the sort of the drunken capital of Australia. I don't think it's healthy at all. And if anyone spent time, not just in Darwin or Alice Springs or Catherine or any of the other places, but certainly the more remote you get, um, the alcohol, the rate of consumption of alcohol and the damage it causes in communities black and white is just extraordinary. And until grog gets dealt with as an issue up there, and it, it, I can't see it happening. I'm 65. I don't think it'll happen in my lifetime. Um, Territorians are mostly proud of their reputation, whereas, you know, I'll sit here and go tut tut. They'd, they'd call me a wowser and they'd say, you just don't understand the territory. Piss off back to Melbourne and get out of our lives. And I don't accept that. I think that you can see, anyone can see the damage it's doing, uh, particularly to children in, in communities and to uh, family violence, all that sort of stuff. And it's dreadful. It's absolutely dreadful. And there are, even now, there are fortunes being made by people out of exploiting the vulnerability of people who are addicted to alcohol, black and white. And those fortunes are reinvested in supporting political parties that don't challenge or threaten the supply of alcohol. So in other words, the alcohol lobby in the Territory is incredibly powerful and influential and no government is prepared to take them on because to do so is to pick a fight with people who you just can't beat. And it's terrible. It's terrible. And, you know, I don't mind having a, I have a, a beer or a glass of wine like anybody else, although I tend not to get drunk anymore because I just can't be bothered. And I, uh, I can see what happens up there and I, I, I don't think it's funny and I don't think it's good and I don't think it's something we should just say is part of the character of the territory. 
it's it's actually I think a social evil. It's out of control, and they ought, they ought do what they need to do to address it. Well, it's a familiar story, isn't it, when yeah. it comes to vested interests with you know smoking, for example, yep. mining, all all of yep. these kind of areas. John, I want to go to Frank Hardy and the Gurindji Walkoff because they are interconnected and perhaps people familiar with the story might know how, but you do take us through, you know, in quite a great way, just what his role was. And he does appear in the story, as I mentioned earlier, multiple times. What a great character he was in terms of, you know, your recounting of your personal involvement with him. But could you take us through that, particularly relating to Gurindji? Certainly, Amy. I had read Power Without Glory, and anybody listening now who's never read it, I can't recommend it enough. It's a great piece of Australian literature, and it really it it's an astonishing work. It's it's a book set in Melbourne with a a, a readily recognisable family, thinly disguised, uh, who are up to their necks in corruption and skullduggery, and on and on it goes. It's a great story, and. I'd read Power That Glory and other books. I also recommend, if you can find a copy, The Outcasts of Fulgara, if you've, um, if you've got an appetite for Frank Hardy once you've read Power That Glory. But anyway, I'd, I'd consumed that stuff and never thought much more about it. And then when I was at the ABC, my first incarnation, as you mentioned at the start, was producing and presenting The Law Report. That's, that's how I went to the ABC as the law expert. And while I was doing the law report, you did the show each week, but then over summer you had to produce and present a summer series which had to be kind of timeless and suitable for people on holidays rather than bang, 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 you know, breaking news stories. So I'd fallen in love with the concept of oral history and I thought, well, I've been to all these sort of legal dinners where someone, some great, you know, retired judge or a lion of the bar Someone stands up and makes a hilarious speech, but no one ever records them and they're always lost. And I thought, well, actually, I can fix that. I can get some of these stories. And I started asking the oldest lawyers I could find anywhere in Australia to sit down and do an interview. And that became a summer series and a book called Taken on Oath. And one of the people I interviewed was the retired judge, Sir John Stark. And it was a hilarious interview. He's just a great raconteur and a you know, a bloke who calls a spade a bloody shovel and he doesn't spare anybody in the interview. It's just, it's extraordinary. And one of the things he did was he was counsel in a whole lot of really interesting cases. He's the judge who had to sentence Ronald Ryan to the gallows. And he tells the story of how that was contrived by Henry Bolte, the then Premier. But that, I'm getting distracted. Uh, so John Stark also told the story in answer to my questions of him about appearing in the Power That Glory trial for Frank Hardy. So now I have to explain. If if someone writes a book and it's defamatory, then the person who's defamed sues them for money, for damages. But Hardy, as the author of Power That Glory, was completely penniless. He was a communist shit-stirring activist writer and there was no point suing him for damages because he didn't have any money. And they didn't want him to pay money. They were already, the Wrens were so wealthy already. What they wanted was to shut him up. So they used an incredibly rare provision called criminal defamation, where you have to show malice. And the penalty for criminal defamation, if you win, and the police have to take the charge up, the penalty is you can go to jail and the book is banned. So the Wrens arranged for police to charge Hardy with criminal defamation. And Sir John Stark was one of his barristers and he told the story about appearing for Hardy. So when I, when I put all this to air as part of my summer series on the Law Report, I get this letter from Hardy a little while after 
who's still alive and living in Carlton, who says, I hear you were talking about me. Can I come in and listen to the whole interview, not just the bits you put to air? I want to hear the unedited interview and what Stark says about me. And I went, whoa, Frank Hardy, you bet you can. How good is this? He's one of my literary heroes and a great figure in Australian literature. And so I invite him to come in and I'm sitting there knee to knee with Frank Hardy. I'm lacing up a reel-to-reel tape on a machine and sitting there while he takes notes. And at the end of it, Hardy goes, would Stark talk to me? I've got more questions for him now. I want to ask him this, 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 and this. So I get onto Sir John Stark and say, do you want another visitor? Frank Hardy wants to come and see you. And I kind of expected Stark to say, I'll piss off, go away. But he was bored. He was lonely. He was very elderly by then. And he said, yeah, sure, bring him down. So off we go. And I take Hardy down and he and Stark talk and chat away. And I get another story out of it because they're suddenly shedding light on all sorts of details about the case. And then Hardy decides, you know, you're kind of handy. You're useful, you young broadcaster, you. And he starts asking me to find out other things that he's been trying to work out about why he was ever prosecuted. And he believed there was a kind of Catholic mafia in the police force who'd conspired with Archbishop Mannix and the Catholic hierarchy to try and rub out this communist shit stirrer because the Catholic Church and the Communist Party were at loggerheads back in Australia. Menzies was trying to ban communism and communists were regarded as a threat to the power of, of religious institutions because they wanted to shut them down. So I'm doing all this sort of ferreting around in my spare time trying to track down the copper who charged Hardy, who, who agrees to speak to us. And then before we can get to see him, Frank Hardy suddenly has a heart attack and dies. And I wake up one morning to the news that the famous Australian author Frank Hardy died overnight. And I go, oh, no, that's terrible. And I go to take some flowers around to his partner, Jenny Barrington in Carlton. And without realising it, his whole family are there, his kids and their partners. And within a few days, I'm being asked, do you think the ABC would be interested in recording Frank Hardy's memorial service? And I go, blood oath we would how about if we broadcast it live to air and suddenly I end up being invited to be the MC of Frank Hardy's memorial service at Collingwood Town Hall with a thousand people in the hall overflowing out onto Punt Road and hundreds of thousands of people listening to us on the radio as we broadcast it live and one of those eulogies as well as his family and others one of the eulogies was given by Gough Whitlam And there I am standing on the side of the stage while Gough Whitlam, sobbing, crying openly, says how it was Hardy. It was Hardy who opened his eyes to Indigenous disadvantage because of Hardy's role inserting himself, as he had, as publicist for the Gurindji in the Gurindji walk-off. And another one of Hardy's books comes up called The Unlucky Australians, where he wrote the story of the Gurindji walk-off. So there I am on stage with Gough Whitlam. When he's finished, I go to usher him and help him down the stairs and he just turns and just sobs on my shoulder I didn't dry clean that suit for a very long time (laughs) and it hits me Hardy's up there at Wave Hill for the Gurindji walk-off it's just down the road from Thelma's pub and I go you know what Hardy the shit-stirring communist activist helping the blackfellas Thelma Hawkes the redneck outback publican who wouldn't let them in the pub and just ripped them off when they bought takeaway. I wonder if they ever met and suddenly everything starts coming back and round again and again, and it keeps happening later on in various ways. I tell in the book, 
and I start to revisit the Gurindji walk-off and some of the things I find out, as I said before, about massacres and rape are truly distressing. And, you know, when you were taught Australian history, I'm sure your teacher did a fabulous job, but I'll bet you they didn't talk about massacres and rape when they were talking about Aboriginal Australians. We were taught in my era, we were taught that the best thing we could do would be to smooth the pillow of a dying race. That was the phrase, that they were inevitably heading for extinction. The best thing we could do was help them along the way and ease their path. And there were words I'd never heard and I'd never learned and I had to find out what they meant, like miscegenation, and you've got to read the book to learn what it's about. And the more I dug and the more I went into it, uh, the more astonished I was and I thought, wow, this is another very powerful part of this story that I've quite almost accidentally stumbled upon. Well, it's true, you know, in my high school experience, it was only in English, actually, in English literature that I learned about the stolen generation through Rabbit Proof Fence. Um, but we didn't talk about the massacres, frontier massacres, genocide and rape, which you do bring up very fully. So the Gurindji walk-off at Wave Hill, it's known as the birth of land rights. And we all were taught, if we were taught anything at all, that it was done because of wages and land. But when you go back and look at the documents and read the petition to the Governor-General, it says we do this for our dignity, for our land, for our wages, and then there's one more bit which has always been left out. And that extra bit is left out because it's just too hard. And those words that have been airbrushed out are, and we do it to protect our women. And I looked at it, I, I was at Kalkarinji and I'm sitting there looking at the facsimile of the, of the original that's on the wall framed and I'm reading it going, holy shit, what was that about? And then I started asking questions, reading books, doing some more research and again and again and again. And as I explain in the book, you find out about the sexual violence that was at the very core of the disputes in the early years of colonial Australia. And if we believe in truth telling and if we believe in treaty and if we believe in righting the wrongs of the past, we simply have to stop pretending it didn't happen. Canada's done this. New Zealand's done this. What is wrong with us? Exactly. You were perfectly pointing out something that I think is really the crux of this. And you were saying that towards the end there, it was about respect. It was about respect for the women, obviously, who were suffering so greatly. And one of the stories brought it out, but maybe you can remember it better than me, that they would often send off the Aboriginal men into the bush on their horses while they would drive their cars back to the women to then rape them while they were away. They'd be on a muster and they'd be taking cattle off to market. And when they were far enough away so that the Aboriginal men couldn't get back home because they were on horseback and they had to look after thousands of cows out in the bush overnight, and the white stockmen and the ringers would get in a car, drive back, rape their daughters and their, and their wives, and then be back in camp as if nothing had happened. And, you know, it's a, a terrible, terrible story. But it's true. And it's all there if you know where to look. Yeah. And it's something that I certainly didn't realise. As you say, it was about wages. We're always told it kind of seemed like a rights situation at work. Um, it was in part. But then there's this other bit that was just too hard to talk mm. about. So nobody ever did. Well, it's about time that we did. It's about time. It's yeah. like the Me Too movement. Okay, we have to deal with this stuff. We have to be prepared to go where we need to go. And can I ask you, what do you think is needed? Because 
we've seen so many things like, you know, truth and reconciliation commissions, but I wonder what you in particular think might be. I think that's what's needed and we need to be serious about it and do it properly, not Mm. pay lip service to it and not go, oh, tut, 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 okay, I guess we need to get this out of the way. That's not what it's about. It's at the foundation of our nation. And if you're serious about it, it means recognising that we don't decide, you and me as two white people, we don't decide what Aboriginal people are entitled to. They have a say and we have to be prepared to listen and meet them on their terms rather than demand they come somehow to fit in on ours. And that's going to be very hard for a lot of people, you know, and as I go through in the book, you know, when Mabo was handed down by the High Court, a lot of people went, oh, shit, they're going to come and take your backyard. We're going to go through all that again. Undoubtedly, there will be a scare campaign. There will be fear-mongering, all of that. People will go, oh, hang on, all these jumped up black fellas, what do they think they're doing? You go, no, we're going to have to deal with this. It's going to be hard. It's going to be brutal, but we just have to do it. John, I've just had so much fun reading this book and talking to you about it. And as people can tell by what we've just discussed, there's so much to it and a whole lot we have not touched on. And I have so oh, yeah, many stories even... <laughs> that are my favourites. We it's didn't all over get the place, to... but I know. I mean, I the the publishers when I submitted the fourth draft of the manuscript <laughs> said we don't quite know what part of the bookshop this book's going to end up in. That <laughs> it could be memoir, it could be history, it could be all sorts of things, Indigenous affairs, yeah. it could be all you know. And, and entertainment and showbiz, it's a bit of a genre buster, but I kind of don't care about that. All I care about is I've told a story, I've told it authentically, I've told it personally, and uh, I hope people enjoy it and I hope they get something out of it other than uh, just a bit of a giggle because there's some, there's some pretty weighty issues in here along the way. Well, I think it strikes a really great balance because it does provide relief when it's needed, but it does clearly show your own social and political conscience and your personal part of the story as well. Thank you, Amy. Yeah, I hope people do get to read the book in full because it's just so engrossing. And, uh, Apollo and, they... and Thelma, A True Tall Tale. Yes. Hardy Grant Publishing and all good bookshops now. All of the good ones and even the bad ones. Well, thank you, John, for taking us through it in such an honest way and for sharing all of your obsession about this story with us. It really shines through in a beautiful way. And I hope that everyone thank you for being so interested and taking so much time to go through the book because a lot of interviewers wouldn't bother Amy. So that's a credit to you. Oh, well, it's my pleasure. Thank you. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. Rachel Denver has very kindly agreed to join us from New York at a late hour, her time. She is the Deputy Director of the Europe and Central Asia Division for Human Rights Watch, which is an organisation that many people listening, I'm sure, are familiar with. And they've been doing some very important monitoring and investigative work on the ground in Ukraine and also at a distance through great things like satellite imaging as well. So we're going to be talking about uh, some of the concerns that human rights advocates have at the moment because there are a number of things that have been observed, particularly in Bucha, a suburb of the capital in Kiev, which has led to a lot of uh, death, destruction, including some instances of torture, summary executions, etc. So I welcome Rachel now onto the program. Hi there, Rachel, and thank you for joining us. Hello, thank you very much for inviting me. 
It's so great to chat with you. And I know we have short time, so I'm just going to jump straight to Butcher as a starting point, because that's what has been in the headlines. It's clearly a place that does have instances, as we've seen in this Butcher report, of summary executions, torture, enforced disappearances, and other examples of violence. And Human Rights Watch has said, all of which would constitute war crimes and potential crimes against humanity. Your colleague Richard Weir has been on the ground there and I wonder if you could take us through some of Human Rights Watch's activity in the Ukraine at the moment and particularly what Richard has found. Right, so yeah, so Rich was in uh, was in Bucha for... Um, he spent six. He went there for six days, uh, in and out of Bucha, uh, from April fourth to April tenth. Uh, he made numerous visits there, and Human Rights Watch. He and also another of my colleagues interviewed uh, thirty-eight, a total of thirty-eight Bucha, residents of Bucha, both in, you know, including emergency responders, morgue workers, doctors, and nurse local officials, but and also, I guess most crucially, uh, victims of abuses and witnesses. And he analy- we analyzed uh, physical evidence, including looking at some of the bodies, looking at original photographs and videos provided by witnesses and victims. As you mentioned, we, um, we also looked at satellite imagery. So, um, you know, we collected our evidence through a, you know, a number of these different means. And I'd say, you know, I, I think that the most crucial one, obviously, is just the long, detailed, uh, painstaking interviews that we, that we do with witnesses, which we try to cross-reference, and that, which we also cross-reference with what, other, with what more than one witness tells us, and also by cross-referencing it with what we find on videos and photographs and satellite imagery. That's how we managed to document, you know, in Bucha alone, a total of uh, uh, 10 uh, summary executions of individuals in Bucha and also uh, seven other indiscriminate killings of civilians. So, um, and, you know, we recognize that this is only really just a, probably a small fraction of the total number of uh, crimes that uh, that were committed in in Bucha, right? Because we have quite a small team, and there were, and it, uh, that was looking at what seemed to be a crime scene at just about every corner of this of this town. Yeah, and as your colleague Rich said, you know, every person he talked to had a story, whether they were directly affected or knew someone who did or had witnessed a crime. And the chief regional prosecutor in Bucha. Ruslan Kravchenko told Human Rights Watch on April the 15th that 278 bodies had been found at that stage in Bucha Mm -hmm. since Russian forces withdrew. And um, prior to the conflict, Bucha had a population of 36,000. What are your thoughts in terms of how and when we might know the true extent of what happened in Bucha, given that mass graves are still being discovered and clearly it's a very dangerous situation being there? Well, the, there was a mass grave that was discovered in, in Bucha, and it had been dug by local people because they needed a place to, to dispose of, of the bodies. And, you know, now that grave has been opened and the bodies were exhumed under the, you know, watchful eye of, the, of uh, investigators in the prosecutor's office and uh, and some and other experts. 
Um, and right now, the you know that Bucha at least is under control of Ukrainian forces. So hopefully, it's. I mean, aside from the, obviously the issue of unexploded ordinances and um, potential booby traps, thank goodness now it's safer to go now than it was, uh, say, a month ago. But um, your question is a very good one. How long will it take? I mean, justice can be, I mean, the, the most important thing is that justice is delivered. And I don't think that justice can be rushed. And, uh, and investigations can't be rushed. There need, you know, that's why it's, um, you know, you need to make sure that you have the right kind of experts and that they're able to do their job and that the evidence is preserved so that they're able to do their job. And that's why one of our key messages, uh, both to the Ukrainian authorities and to, you know, ICC investigators and to the various governments that are now in, in, in the European Union, governments of various countries of the, European, of, of the European Union, which have universal jurisdiction laws, which means that they can prosecute cases of war crimes, even if they don't take place in their in their own countries. There are all these overlapping uh, efforts to ensure accountability. Um, what, you know, what's very important is to make sure that, that all these overlapping efforts are somehow coordinated so that the evidence is preserved, so that it, so that it is logged, so that it is archived, because justice can take, a, you know, can take a long time. It takes as much time as it needs in order for there to, you know, for the evidence to be uh, un, unimpeachable and in order for the process to be, in, you know, completely impartial. And one area that I know the Ukraine Human Rights Ombudsman has been looking at is uh, sexual assaults and rapes, uh, particularly against women, but not just against women and girls. Mm -hmm. There was a report in The Guardian saying that 25 girls and women aged 14 to 24 were held in a basement by Russian soldiers uh, who threatened to rape them to the point where they wouldn't want sexual contact with any man, this is a quote, uh, to prevent them from having Ukrainian children. That is from the Ukrainian ombudsman. Now nine of them are reported to be pregnant. I wonder whether Human Rights Watch was able to uh, corroborate any of these crimes in particular. So I, I have read The Guardian's uh, article. I, I can't I can't really speak to that, or I can't comment on the on the factuals of that article, because it's it's their research, not ours. I can say that Human Rights Watch did document one case of uh, of repeated rape of a woman in mid March in uh, in a village in Kharkiv region uh, when she was sheltering in a school and uh, Russian together with um, you know like forty other people including her mother and her child. And a Russian soldier came uh, to the basement where they were sheltering in the school and sort of picked her out and forced her to, into one of the classrooms and repeatedly assaulted, you know, repeatedly raped her. Um, fortunately, the, the soldier eventually left this, this school and or this uh, like shelter that people were sheltering there from the shelling. And fortunately, uh, this woman was eventually able to get to Kharkiv and get um, seek medical services and also psychological services. So it does happen. It's just it's it's a bit hard for me to um, to talk about the, the scale. And I think here it's what's really important is to make sure that uh, 
uh, as particularly as foreign actors um, and, you know, foreign actors that are trying to pursue justice and also as foreign journalists go and, you know, look and look for these cases or find these cases, they really should be um, at the same time making sure that survivors uh, have the resources that they need to get access to services. So people should always be going when they, when they go around to towns and villages and they, if they, you know, just in case they're going to come across a, uh, a rape survivor, you know, they really should have phone numbers of psychological services and medical services on hand to, to give them. Yeah, that's a really excellent point. Uh, Rachel, just finally, we were talking off air about Mariupol, and that's a very concerning area for a number of reasons, because it's been under attack, sustained attack for a long time, and it, it's been very difficult to evacuate civilians from the area. I wonder, mm. do you have any information and insight into the situation at a human rights level in Mariupol and any other areas of concern, uh, particularly for Human Rights Watch? Yeah. Well, uh, look, it's been a sheer hellscape. Mariupol has been turned into a, a charred hellscape, a former shell of itself, and it's very difficult to say what now. You know, right now, what is happening to civilians on the ground? The, the civilians have managed to survive the, uh, you know, the the, the unrelenting bombing and shelling uh, over the past two months. Um, and from what we've seen. So we're concerned about a couple of things. One, just the the wanton bombing and shelling of uh, of Mariupol, the utter disregard for civilian life, the need urgently now for uh, you know Russian forces uh, to allow civilians to the, the the remaining civilians to to leave in safety and to leave if if it is their desire to other parts of Ukraine. Um, we're very concerned also about, uh, you know, what will what what could happen when Russian forces take control over the entire city, if that happens. Judging, I mean, looking at what they've done in other towns and uh, cities that have that came under their control, like uh, like Bucha, like some of the other smaller towns and villages that my colleagues have been to uh, in. A couple of the, you know, in in Kiev and Chernihiv regions, uh, where the, we've documented summary executions and forced disappearances and, and torture, not just in Bucha but in other places as well, though on a, a smaller scale than in Bucha, it, it certainly uh, raises concern about what uh, what Russian forces will, you know, will do when they establish uh, full control if they establish f full control over Mariupol. So that's one set of concerns. Another set of concerns is again just letting you know, the need for civilians to be able to leave in safety and to be able to leave to go to other parts of Ukraine, which is, uh, if that's, you know, if that's their desire. We have we have spoken with people who um, uh, who were able to leave Mariupol, uh, but were diverted uh, by or instructed by, uh, you know, uh, Russian military, either at checkpoints or in, in other circumstances, uh, to go to other parts of uh, Russia-occupied Ukraine or to or, or to Russia itself, and that's a pretty serious violation of the Geneva Conventions. Um, you know, Russia is an occupying force in in Ukraine now; it's an occupying power, and it's it's actually a, a quite a serious violation for an occupying power to um, compel 
uh, or to give civilians no other choice but to go to other occupied areas or uh, or to the occupying power itself, right? Because uh, you know, and it's not really a you know, it's not really a free choice if the if what they if what the Russian forces tell you is well, you kind of stay here and die. Uh, or you come to Russia, but you know we're not letting you go to Ukraine to other parts of Ukraine. That's that's not a free choice. No, and we have seen recently breaking news in the last two days that Ukraine's President Zelensky has claimed that about half a million people, including five thousand children, have been forcibly deported to Russia's Federation from the occupied areas of Ukraine. Now, obviously, it's going to be hard to be able to cross-check that um but your yeah. um yeah so yeah. i can't speak to the numbers i, I can't yeah. i couldn't confirm those numbers but i can definitely tell you that we have documented cases where people were clearly uh, you know where, where we had situations that invo- involving civilians and with that fit the definition of forced transfer to a t mm, yeah that, bear, that bears all the hallmarks of a forced transfer yeah, and certainly when you've had no access to food or clean water or electricity, like a many in Mariupol, I know it must be a really difficult um, situation to be fleeing from. So if they can flee at all. Rachel, thank you so much for taking us through some of the concerns of, of Human Rights Watch. And I do implore everyone to read the Butcher report and also to check out your colleague Richard's uh, videos, which he's also filmed some uh, interviews on the ground with some of these witnesses um, and victims themselves. So I appreciate your time today. Thank you so much. I've just been speaking with Rachel Denver from Human Rights Watch. She is Deputy Director of the Europe and Central Asia Division. I'm Amy Mullins and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.